Shared funding, more digital services, more fluid workforce models. Those are among the federal government trends in this year's study by Deloitte. The director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights, Bill Eggers, joins me with the details. Bill, good to have you back. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you again, Tom. And let's talk about that idea of shared funding. This really caught my eye because, you know, funding is by structure, stovepiped, you know, among federal agencies because of the way the whole system is set up. But yet one of the cross-cutting trends that you have identified is tackling funding silos. Tell us more. Absolutely. The major theme of the report is looking at walls coming down, dissolving of boundaries between levels of government, between the public-private sector and nonprofits, and all the ways governments are trying to really break down silos. And as your listeners know, the funding silos is really one of the biggest issues in terms of why we have a lot of these silos. And so they can hinder progress on key initiatives. And what we're seeing is that government leaders increasingly are recognizing these shared funding models are needed to incentivize collaboration between agencies. In the U.S. federal government, we're seeing that, of course, with the Technology Modernization Fund. We're seeing this all over the world in the movement towards life events-based service delivery, where you need to, where you're focused on birth or death or losing a job or disability, and you need to bring together a lot of the different agencies to deliver that service uh, for that individual. So increasingly, what we're seeing is mechanisms around pooled funding. For instance, in Australia, in New South Wales, they now have a $2 billion digital restart fund, which is all about pooling that funding towards offering more of a whole of government sort of approach to service delivery. And how do agencies go about doing that? Because they get their funding and they get their funding for their agency. What's the mechanism by which they can pool resources effectively to be able to collaborate? What we're seeing is a number of different models right now. So, of course, one of them is when you have it at the central level where they have different funds and governance structures for cross-agency, cross-governmental initiatives. The Technology Modernization Fund is an example. Singapore has a very ambitious whole-of-nation approach where they actively collaborate along those lines. Also have seen, certainly previously, a lead agency model where a lead agency receives the funding then to bring together other sort of entities we are seeing also. So if you think about the Technology Modernization Fund, it's invested over $500 million in 33 projects across 18 federal agencies. And they've really been cross-cutting, cross-agency approaches. So the funding piece and the governance elements are really, really important with that. We also are seeing this even at the state level. The state of California created a community economic resilience fund to promote regional resiliency. So setting up those funding structures correctly is really, really important where you have that pooled funding that goes across agencies and levels of government. All right. And the other trend that caught my eye was fluid government workforce models. I'm presuming that's the leftovers or the trend that's left as the worldwide pandemic ebbed away. And now people are discovering new ways of working and so forth. Is that happening in the United States or is it mostly overseas also? Well, the fluid government workforce, it really goes beyond that. They're embracing flexible talent models to mobilize skills in different areas such as cybersecurity, AI, data science. 
There are a lot of agencies are beginning to look towards skill-based workforce approaches at the center rather than traditional jobs. We're even seeing a number of states, uh, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Maryland, who have actually said that we're no longer going to require college degrees for a whole host of different jobs. So in having more flexibility focused on skills, we're also seeing hybrid work, but also collaboration as a core workforce competency. So an example of the flexibility within the government workforce is the movement towards talent marketplaces, which we've seen at NASA, EPA, and within the military, where people can go from project to project, enhance their skills, and have mobility within government, which is something that all of our surveys show is really important to Gen Z and millennials. And in the U.S. federal level, I guess we're seeing pay flexibilities applied to certain careers where there's talent needed. That would be another example. Absolutely. We're certainly seeing that in the cybersecurity area and the data science area and other areas. It's just a, a real big movement, whether it's around career paths, performance management, to more fluidity, more agility around how to use different employees, where they can work, and really bringing people together and really trying to connect better people's skills development and career progression. In Argentina, they have something called the Design Academy at the Government Lab, and they're trying to develop a much more flexible, data-fluent public sector where they've educated more than 15,000 public servants in just the first three years around some of those core skills. And they've even gamified this, uh, where you get points for attending a different lecture. So those are, are just some examples of knowing that people, you know, as we live longer, as people move around more, they're going to need to develop their skills on a regular basis. And how can government as employer help to both catalyze and encourage that. We're speaking with Bill Eggers, Executive Director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights. This idea of tailored public services, and the authors of that particular segment were the United States, but also Canada and Singapore, which has been innovative in a lot of ways over the decades. Tailored public service, what does that mean? And does that get government away from treating the billionaire and the pauper alike who both go to socialsecurity.gov? Tailored public services is one of the biggest digital trends and customer experience trends we're seeing in government. It's really about enabling greater personalization by government and really focused on moving away from a one-size-fits-all approach towards one that really focuses on what are the individual needs of citizens and businesses. And the way we've looked at it, there's kind of a spectrum. So you start off some services, one size fits all, it might be road repair, fire protection, but then you move towards customer segmentation where you're doing demographic targeting. It could be elderly, low income people or veterans or geographic targeting by region. And then as you move up the personalization spectrum, you're having more personalized proactive services. And that's around things like life events, births, deaths, job losses, or suggested services. If you qualify for X, you may also benefit from Y. And then we have at the highest level, most tailored is what we call government for one. And that's when you fully tailored, individually customized, designed around a constituent's needs and personalized. And of course, omnichannel and increasingly generative AI is going to be involved in that. So we are seeing that again as a very, very big movement right now around digital government. And we've done a survey of citizens all over the world that's going to be out in a few weeks. And that looked like people are willing to 
provide more of their data in exchange for much more customized services. So we see this as a trend that is really accelerating dramatically. And one more I wanted to ask you about was back office innovations, improving mission performance. Again, a lot of back office work was done because of the pandemic, but I guess you're going to tell me it goes beyond that, really. But you need that enabling base of technology for people to do anything else pretty much nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I think the wall between the back office and the front office and that mindset really won't survive because I think we're seeing much more of a blend of the agencies really should view back offices as mission enabling offices key to their organizational mission and really focusing all the different ways in this could involve that your back office operations can actually help to achieve mission. And, you know, some of the technologies, of course, are AI and cloud that enable that. But we're seeing a lot of really interesting examples from Canada, Transport Canada, to Sweden, to Portugal, where they're using things such as digital twins and integrating data from various verticals in order to help them optimize bus routes and garbage routes and best times to collect data. And really in looking at how, what are all the different ways these back office innovations using these new technologies can help to enable massive improvements in mission performance. That's what that trend is all about. And it's a very, very promising thing. So I think as we look to the future, this sort of back office versus front office dichotomy is increasingly going to be blended. This report is pretty optimistic. I mean, it seems like the sense is things are getting better in terms of mission delivery and government as a place to work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the government trends are really about each year, and this is our fourth year, looking at what are the biggest innovations we're seeing in government management technology all over the world, highlighting those in the hope that other governments uh, can learn from them and adopt them. And I think a key piece of this year's theme is that a lot of these things are happening irregardless of COVID. Certainly COVID accelerated uh, some of the developments, but some of these developments have been happening for a number of years. The tackling funding silos is something that public management experts have talked about for many decades. And we're finally starting to see some really innovative funding models for that and also governance models. So a lot of innovation all over the world, and it's an exciting time. Bill Eggers is Executive Director of Deloitte's Center for Government Insights. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that 2023 trends at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.